Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Russian East European Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh and patrons who give monthly donations to help support this podcast and keep it going. If you like what you hear here and you learn a lot and you find it interesting, please consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash Euronaut or to Euronaut.org and find that Patreon button and join the crowd. So this is the seventh and final episode in our series on religion in post-socialist societies, which was organized this past spring as part of Reese's semester interview series and in partnership with Susanna Bogomil, who is at the Institute of Archaeology and Ethnology at the Polish Academy of Sciences. So our final interview in our religion series and socialist societies are with two people, Elmira Moratova and Michael Kemper on Islam and particularly Crimean Tatars, which of course is another incredibly important topic especially for today with the ongoing war in Ukraine. So tell us a bit about the importance of this interview. You know, I'm super happy that we managed to make this podcast, but I am afraid that with this talk, we only touch the top of the iceberg. So this podcast takes us to, in my opinion, fascinating foreign countries of the Central Asia and Crimea, as you said. The funny thing that it is the last podcast in our series, but frankly speaking, it could be the first podcast in a new series which we could dedicate fully to Islam in socialist and post-socialist societies. And don't you think that we could make new podcasts on lived religion of Muslims on Islam in the secret police archives because they, there is a lot of such documents or the impact of repressions or on religious thought? So I think that the advantage of this podcast and this discussion that we, we have with our guest is that uh, when you will listen to this podcast, you will see all these various dimensions. But probably, and it is my feeling that this uh, podcast leaves us with a little bit of feeling of dissatisfaction that we could, you know, go deeper and deeper. But I think that um, there are thousands other wonderful podcasts of your platform. And I simply hope that this podcast will encourage listeners to listen to your other talks and to hear other guests. Elmira Maratova is a research fellow at Aarhus Institute of Advanced Studies in Denmark and previously at the Crimean Federal University in Ukraine. She's a political scientist interested in minority, ethnic, and religious studies, and while at Aarhus, she will focus on ethnic and religious developments amongst Crimean Tatars in the post-2014 Crimea. Michael Kemper is a professor of East European History at the University of Amsterdam in the Department of European Studies. He has published widely on Islamic literatures and manuscripts in the Volga Ural and North Caucasus regions, on the history of Soviet Oriental studies and the interaction between languages of Islam and Eastern Orthodoxy in contemporary Russia. Here's Elmira Moratova and Michael Kemper. All right, since both of you deal with questions of Islam and ethnicity in 
Soviet, Russia in a variety of time periods. I'd like to have us start our conversation by just having you outline your work on Islam and Islamic communities. So let's start with you, Elmira. Okay, well, my research focuses mainly on Crimean Tatar Muslim community and indigenous people of Crimea. And my path began when I was a postgraduate student writing a dissertation on Islamic revival in post-Soviet Crimea. I was mainly interested in how Muslim institutions were re-emerging and operating and how secular institutions used Islam for political mobilization and the role of foreign Islamic countries and organizations. And later, I became interested in interface and interethnic relations in Crimea, and we're doing several research projects on media role in those relations and also land issue. Uh, for the past nine years, I mainly focused on the impact of Russian annexation of Crimea on Crimean Tatars' identity, intra-group dynamics and value orientation. And I'm also very interested in collective memory of Crimean Tatars of past displacements and how it affected their attitude towards the second annexation and also migration discussions and survival strategies in Crimea. Great, great. And Michael, how about you? I'm an Orientalist in the classical sense, so Arabic studies, Turkic studies, and Islamic studies, and I did Russian studies. So where does it all come together? Um, in the libraries of the Volga Tatars and the Dagestanis. So I use Arabic and Turkish in order to decipher the manuscripts and Russian for the secondary literature, for the context that you need. And manuscripts are important simply because for a long time, they were the only means of communication that circulated, for instance, in Dagestan. Uh, and they were still important in the Soviet period when no printing was available in Islamic languages, in the home languages about Islam. They still copied and retained the old manuscripts written in Arabic from right to left. I also worked, as you said, on Soviet Orientalism, that is on the way how the Soviet Union used Oriental Studies scholars like myself for nation state building, that is for the Republican identities, for instance. And we also worked here in Bochum and in Amsterdam on contemporary Russia and how Islam is being used by the Putin system and what kind of agency, what kind of freedom Muslims still have when conceiving of the correct Islam as they would like to have it. Mm -hmm. Well, let's start our discussion because you both deal with so many interesting topics. Hopefully you can capture at least some of them today. And that is Bolsheviks come to power in 1917 and uh, they are by and large anti-religion, but they have a problem with populations who are religious or have different ethnic identities. So uh, what was the impact of Soviet communism on Islam? Let's start with you, Michael. There are different models for how to understand what happened to Islam. On the one hand, you have the idea of a general repression, and that is true for the late 1920s, especially the 1930s. But then from 1944 onwards, or maybe even earlier, Islam was brought back into the public sphere by the Soviet system, by the Bolsheviks, to use them for their own goals. So there was a strong emphasis on official Islam, as we call it. That's the way how it's being used by the state institutions. That's the muftiates that we know. And then a kind of retreat into the private sphere for everything that doesn't fit the Soviet system. So periods of repression, periods of cooperation, and then, of course, what we call the renewal, the renaissance of Islam starting in the late 1980s, a very turbulent period for religions. 
Amira, how about you? What can you say about the impact of communism? You know, to add that we can also talking about different experiences of different Muslim communities within the Soviet Union, because of course there was a general Soviet policy toward Islam and Muslim communities that went through different stages, and Michael outlined them. But also there were some peculiarities in how that policy affected various communities. For example, we can say that there were some general things common to all Muslims. For example, the change of the alphabet, firstly from, from Arabic to Latin in 1930s and then from Latin to Cyrillic in 1940s. And also this process of domestification of religion when it went to private sphere and was privatized by families and communities. But also, I think we can also distinguish between uh, Muslim communities living in Northern Caucasus and Central Asia who were less affected by the general policy toward religion and those in so-called European part of the Soviet Union, which was affected to a great extent, including the Crimean Tatars, for example. So different experience, different results of those policies on different levels, I would say. So we can't uh, have this general picture of Soviet impact on Islam in Soviet Union. So it's very different, I think, and has a lot of nuances. And it seems to, like you said, that it depends on what ethnic group and it depends on where that group is in the Soviet Union. Because as we know, for example, with the ethnic cleansings in the 40s, most of the ethnic populations that were cleansed were border, either on various border regions or they had diasporas in other countries or they were considered enemy nations, say, of the Volga Germans. Does that also factor in later on? Different ethnic groups have different relations with Islam and the Soviet state? Oh, yes, Almira is absolutely right. That also has to do with the different kind of Islams that were present and how that was already part of the national movements before 1917, for instance. There is an intellectual Islam, and the Soviets first tried to co-opt that, namely theologians who tried to reform Islam and make it more progressive, so that worked for a while, whereas the traditional Islam was declared as the superstition, as the enemy of of socialism. So these are distinctions that the Soviets once in a while fostered in order to get the benefits from that. Uh, in the end, they were all repressed in the 1930s. And I think that repression took place everywhere, whether it's in some remote villages of Siberia or in uh, Moscow, where you have Muslims and in Leningrad, uh, and in the North Caucasus and in the Crimea. But that's a general feature that also goes hand in hand with the repression of the secular intellectuals uh, in the 1930s that also fall prey to Stalin's terror. Anything to add, Amira? Well, I agree with Michael, yes. But also, for example, we can say the communities that were most able to preserve, for example, some kind of Islamic education system were mostly in Northern Caucasus and Central Asia, like underground madrasas or maktabs and so on. So we can't say anything about that in Crimea or less of that in, for example, Volga Ural region and so on. So I think it's also, yeah, this geographical factor was important. And also this question of titular nations, I think also should be considered, like the policy toward minorities and also to titular nation was different because there was a policy of relying on national elites and so on when ethnic minorities were not having that resource in their pocket. What about, you know, in the popular kind of understanding, and here I'm speaking for the popular, 
we there's a tend to emphasize sectarianism within Islam, right, between Sunni and Shia Muslims. Was this a factor also in the Soviet Union? Did the Soviet government divide and conquer Shia and Sunni Muslims, or did they have different policies for each, Elmira? Well, honestly, Sean, I don't know much about that because I'm not a specialist on Soviet period of Islamic development, and I haven't came across any actually studies that would highlight such kind of policy of this relying on the sectarianism within Islam. So I'm not an expert and I don't know anything to add to this. Michael, do you have any insight into that question? Well, there are two regions where branches of the Shi'is would be dominant. Uh, that's Azerbaijan and, and parts of Tajikistan. Um, in Azerbaijan, you had a Muslim leadership that was Shi'i and the Sheikh al-Islam, the head of that, had a Sunni deputy in order to govern both communities. As Elmira said, there is not really a playing off one against the other, uh, but there are other trends and other distinctions within Islam that were set against each other, like Sufism and intellectual Islam, for instance. So supporting the reformists against Sufi practices like going to ziyarats to shrines in the countryside and asking for the blessing of the deceased sheikh. This was regarded as completely backward and to be battled again. But it, then again, if you look at the manuscript evidence from what is left over from all these Soviet years, oftentimes Sufis would also be intellectuals and intellectuals would also be Sufis. And also the muftis didn't always side with one side only. So they supported Soviet policies in one case. And when they were amongst themselves, they didn't really do that anymore because they were also gaining money from these Sufi practices, for instance, from these visitations of shrines. Let's, let's talk about the memory and move things more towards the present and how Islamic communities deal with the past, the Soviet past. Elmira, you were working on Crimean Tatars and the memory of deportation and how that works today and how these communities deal with the traumas of that past. How does the role of the memory of, say, the deportation of Tatars from Crimea play in the religious and cultural and ethnic identity today? It's a very important question. And we can say that this deportation, it became a collective trauma for Crimean Tatars for decades, for several generations. After the deportation, which lasted for um, almost 50 years, Crimean Tatars use this memory of deportation to unite in their struggle to come back to Crimea. So they established this Crimean Tatar national movement, very famous in the former Soviet Union, which united Crimean Tatars of different social and age group. And after repatriation, this memory of deportation was also a very powerful factor in ethnopolitical mobilization of Crimean Tatars for restoration of their collective rights. These were rights for political participation, involvement in governing bodies, and also for the right to be part of distribution of economic resources, particularly land, which is the most important resource in Crimea. And even after, during the whole post-Soviet period, Crimean Tatars were often relying or referring to the memory of deportation. If you look at the discourse of Islamic organizations, Islamic groups within the Crimean Tatar community, we can see that all the narratives are constructed around two events, the first annexation of Crimea at the end of the 18th century by Russian Empire and the deportations. So all narratives are built around them. 
And when the first annexation is beginning of the so-called black era in their history, the deportation is a peak. It's something like when the most casualties took place and there was an enormous damage on culture and economics of Crimean Tatars. And there was a huge politics of memory of deportation in post-Soviet Crimea with many commemorative practices like rallies, protests, and religious prayers, and also monuments and documentaries. And this allowed to pass this memory on deportation to next generations of Crimean Tatars who were born in Crimea, who were never in exile, never in Central Asia or in those places. So it's still very powerful for Crimean Tatars, and it still shapes their attitudes and their behaviors. What is the Crimean Tatar population in post-Soviet Crimea? Well, it's about 250,000 people, according to the last Ukrainian census in 2001. After that, we hadn't any reliable sources on the like, population. But you know, there are big Crimean Tatar diasporas in Turkey, Romania, and Bulgaria because of emigration after the first annexation of Crimea. Because I know this from other ethnic groups that have these historical traumas. Does the Crimean Tatar diaspora play an important role in the transfer and keeping alive of this traumatic memory? Well, to some extent, because diaspora is very uh, diverse. It was formed during the long process, like in a long period of time, starting from the late 18th century. So those who emigrated at that time, they almost assimilated because in very close Turkish environment. So those who emigrated in the early 20th century, so they still managed to preserve their ethnic identity and they keep ties with Crimean Tatars during the post-Soviet period. And they were yes, participating in commemoration practices and supporting Crimean Tatar identity and religious life in Crimea. So it depends on what kind of diaspora we are talking and different, yeah, different experience. Michael, can you speak to this issue when it regards Chechens and English and the politics of memory of deportation in religious revival or ethnic revival today? Absolutely. What Almira said is that the leaders of the Crimean Tatar nation started as dissidents in Tashkent, in Kazakhstan. For the Chechens who were deported in 1944, to basically also to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and other places, they could return after the death of Stalin. That's the major difference. So they had a longer period of being back in their homeland than the Crimean Tatars, who returned only in the 1980s, 1990s. And there were more of the Chechens. And if you look at the leadership of the first Chechen separatist movement of the 1990s, Dudayev, Yandabiev, Maskhadov, they were all born in Kazakhstan. They were born in Kazakhstan in the 1950s. Uh, Dudayev, the first leader of the Chechen war for liberation from Russia, basically, he was born a couple of days before the people were put on freight trains and exiled, brought to Kazakhstan. So for them, for this separatist movement, the experience of being deported, although it was already a time ago, was certainly very strong and a very big factor in the separatist war against Russia trying to get away from Moscow's hold on the region. From the time of the Kadyrovs, that is, after the successful retaking of Chechnya by Vladimir Putin, the whole experience of exile is downplayed. It's, of course, downplayed according to the Russian scenario. This was something from which all of the Russian nations suffered. Stalinism was bad, but after all, they were not the only ones. This doesn't mean it's not there anymore. 
but it just it's just not emphasized by the regimes and there's little space for playing it out so michael would you say that this memory now is deinstitutionalized and is it just maintained through family networks and the kind of family memory yes absolutely and of course it's getting remote which is different from the Crimean Tatar case. So it's, there's already a gap in the generation, probably, for most of the people who do not experience that. And of course, they are brainwashed by the current system. And what about for religious identity, Elmira? In the former Soviet Union, former Soviet space writ large, you have people who maybe identify as Muslim in an ethnic sense, but aren't necessarily religious. They might be completely secular. So what role does Islam as a religious faith and practice play in the construction of post-Soviet national identity for, say, the Crimean Tatars? After the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was this increasing interest in religion all across the Soviet Union. And the same was for Muslim communities and Crimean Tatars particularly. When people were trying to understand their roots and they were trying to refer to Islam as part of their ethnic identity, this was very crucial for Crimean Tatars because they repatriated and they tried to revive their culture, they keep their identity, and Islam was seen as part of that identity, like something that could uh, help to preserve rituals, uh, traditions, some com- communal tiles, something like that. This was part of the story from the point of view of ordinary people who were trying to understand better who are they, what it means to be Muslim. So they're trying to pray, to read some literature on Islam. But from other parts, there were some Crimean Tatar political organizations. For example, the Majlis, the representative body of Crimean Tatars, who sees Islam as part of a tool of political mobilization because it was very powerful and useful and it could help to legitimize their authorities and their actions. So what they did, they tried to take control over the Crimean Muftiat and involve it in its political activities. It was like a twin between Majidis and Muftiat. They became two hands acting in one direction. And both of them were very much interested in promoting and advocating so-called traditional Crimean Tatar Islam because this was Islam they wanted to revive, they wanted to develop in Crimea, in contrast to other type of Islam, because in the early 90s, we had a huge wave of Muslims coming from various Muslim countries to Crimea in order to help Crimean Tatars in their efforts to revive Islamic life. And those Muslims came with their own traditions, with their own ideologies. And those ideologies were different to Crimean Tatars, because as you said, during the Soviet time, uh, Crimean Tatars considered them, themselves Muslims, but only few of them really were practicing Muslims. They had very little knowledge on what to be Muslims. And when newcomers from Muslim countries came to Crimea, they started to teach Crimean Tatars how to pray, how to read Quran, how to do some other things. And not many people were satisfied and happy with that because they see it as a threat to their national identity. And Majidis and Muftia tried their best to limit the influence of foreign organizations and countries on Crimean Tatars because of national identity of Crimean Tatars. So because it was like dismantling, it was disseminating and uh, raising from Crimean landscape. Mm -hmm. And Michael, what role does religious Islam uh, in Islamic thought more generally play in, say, in the North Caucasus? 
for national identity or even the creation of some sort of nation? Yeah, it's much of a cultural marker, of course, in contradistinctions to Russians or to not being a Slavic citizen of Russia. It has undergone very thorough transformations since the 1990s, so it's come more to the fore. It's very public now. You have to perform Islam in public in order to be accepted by your community. And it has other functions. In Chechnya, it's part of Chechen nationalism, of national identity, as it's being designed by the leadership. In Dagestan, which is a multi-ethnic country, Chechnya is rather homogeneous. Dagestan is 20-plus small nations that all have their traditional homelands, but by Soviet modernization have been tossed around and have been highly mobile. For them, being Dagestani also means to be Sunni Islam in contradistinctions to the Shi'i Azerbaijanis, who are not so Shi'i after all anymore, and to the Christian world around them. Uh, so it's it's largely a marker of identity in different contexts and circumstances. But of course, there's also a piety movement. There's a going back to being pious and to feeling your responsibility before God. After all, we're talking about religion. That has to do a lot with your finding your way to salvation. And that is something that we shouldn't underestimate. It's more powerful than national markers, which are, of course, interchangeable in one way or another. Right. Michael, Amir just mentioned in terms of the Crimean Tatars, you have Muslims coming from other Muslim societies to basically teach them Islam. What are the connections with Muslims in Dagestan and Chechnya to the wider Islamic world? Yeah, that's, of course, a, yeah, part of globalization. They are highly connected. For Dagestan, Arabic played a huge role in literature and plays a huge role in religious education. So people, young people who are interested in Islam know Arabic, and oftentimes they're very fluent, and they have traveled the Arabic world. So for them, the orientation is countries like Iraq, Syria, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, which means they're very open to the Muslim world, uh, and thereby also, of course, to the trends of Islam in those, and to the fashions. Also, It's also a question of what do you wear how do you behave? How do you act yourself? And where do you get your education? On the whole, this influence of outside players has been curtailed severely by Putin, who, of course, replaced foreign money by Kremlin money. But on the other side, you can't stop globalization. People are, by their media, of course, in this global setting. Mm -hmm. And of course, I would imagine you also have pilgrimage, too. So those networks of pilgrimage and that experience of pilgrimage also plays a role. Absolutely. Ritual plays a huge role at home, that is going to the mosque, showing yourself, uh, fasting in Ramadan, of course, uh, as a marker of, of being part of the community. Public pressure plays a huge role, especially in, for women. And for foreign relations, yes, the Hajj is important also to show off, right? Just like certain public uh, figures in Russia, including politicians, write a PhD thesis once in their lifetime. So they also go to Hajj once in a lifetime in order to simply to be on the right side. Elmira, has those global connections with the wider Islamic world strengthened after Russia's annexation? Or, or how has the annexation of Crimea by Russia in 2014 impacted those more interglobal connections with Islam? Well, actually, no. Russian policy to control a very religious life it resulted in that in Russia, many Islamic organizations, for example, Hezbollah Tahrir, Muslim Brotherhood, or some others are considered terrorists and persecuted. But in Crimea, when it was a part of Ukraine, 
many of these organizations were flourishing because of Ukrainian legislation, which is very liberal. None of religious organizations in Ukraine is banned as extremist or terrorist. Like, And when Russia came, it considerably changed everything in Crimea. So we had this first floor of people, followers of Hezbo Tahrir, Salafi, and other movements who fled Crimea in few months after the annexation because they knew what is going to happen in Crimea because they had these connections with Russian Muslims before. So now we can see that many of those uh, fellows of those global transnational movements who stayed in Crimea are persecuted as extremists and terrorists. We have more than 200 people who already arrested and accused of being terrorists and some of them already sentenced to very high prison terms after 20 years. So others are still under investigation. Really, Russian arrival didn't stop the spread of those organizations, but forced it to go to underground. And actually, we have very interesting phenomena and processes going on with those global organizations in Crimea. For example, in 2016, members of Hezbollah Tahrir, the most persecuted Islamic group in Crimea, they established a civil society organization called Crimean Solidarity, which unites the families of those who were arrested and persecuted, and also some other Crimean Tatars join this organization. And right now, this is one of the most powerful civil society organizations in Crimea, which unites all those who are disagree with Russian policy. And it just do very fascinating things in Crimea in terms of civic journalism, in providing legal assistance for those persecuted and also providing media coverage to Russian policy in Crimea. So this a very interesting, unexpected result, actually, of Russian policy in Crimea. From one side, it persecuting. From other side, we have this change in intergroup uh, dynamic within the Crimean Tatar community because Russia expelled the most powerful secular Crimean Tatar organization as Majlis. It was banned as extremists and leaders were deported and persecuted. And this niche was occupied by people from Crimean Solidarity, who are now the most uh, active and the most uh, like authoritarian, authoritative people in Crimea, and who are actually have a lot of ambitions to become leaders in the next future. So we are expecting a big internal changes within the Crimean Tatar community after the occupation. That, that's one of the things that I found interesting about Russia's aggression in Ukraine in general and also the annexation of Crimea is that it had the opposite effect of what Putin wanted, which is it actually cre- it strengthened the kind of national sense. We see this, of course, for Ukrainians. But from what you're saying, it sounds like for Crimean Tatars too, the annexation has consolidated a bit more the Crimean Tatar community. Well, we have multifaceted effects of Russian annexation. First of all, what is important is that Crimean Tatars always used to be very politically active before the annexation. So they were very well mobilized and they had very clear stated their goal to regain their statehood in Crimea in form of national territorial autonomy. And they did a lot of political activism in Crimea before. Now all of that is gone. So now only state-approved forms of political activism are allowed in Crimea, and Crimean Tatars are now went from political sphere to economic and all other spheres just to be occupied with something. But this is one very important consequence of Russian annexation. But second one, you're right, 
before annexation, Hizbut Tahrir, for example, and other transnational organizations were considered by the majority of Crimean Tatars as marginal, as something not suitable to the community. They were criticized, there were a lot of debates towards them and critics towards them. But what Russia did, it actually contributed to consolidation of Crimean Tatars. Well, it became less important to what Islamic group you belong to than that you are Crimean Tatars. And actually, Hizbut Tahrir also managed to reframe and reshape its discourse and its rhetoric before they presented themselves mostly as Crimean Muslims. After annexation, they now saying, we are Crimean Tatars, Crimean Muslims. They appeal to the Crimean Tatars now. They talk mostly about the common things, but not differences. Before they tried to teach Crimean Tatars how to be pure Muslims, but now they don't do it. They refer to the memory of deportation and first annexation and trying to get this support of the rest of the Crimean Tatar population. And to a large extent, they actually succeeded in this. So yeah, consolidation is another consequence of the annexation. Right. Michael, the post-Soviet experience of Muslims in Chechnya and Dagestan has been marked, of course, by the two Chechen wars, continued operations against extremism, uh, acts of terrorism, and, of course, in Chechnya's case, the brutal rule of Ramzan Kadyrov. Talk about Muslims' life and faith within these communities, and how did they make sense of the violence that has occurred since the 1990s? in their relationship with the Russian Federation? On the one hand, there are probably now more mosques in Dagestan and in Chechnya than there have ever been. So Islam is being practiced. It's there. It's very public. But that's because it's being part of the system. It's being integrated into Putin's rule and into Ramzan Kadyrov's rule. So for Putin, Islam and Muslims play a huge role because they make up maybe 20 million people of the Russian population. So they have to find a place in Russia and they have to be recognized as citizens and as Muslims. And then comes the tricky thing. It's obviously easier to integrate them as Muslims than as Tatars or Bashkirs who have their traditions of statehood who might want to break away at one point. Also, Chechnya might want to break away if, for instance, as people speculate, the money flow from Moscow will stop one day and Kazdirov might have difficulties in paying off all the militants or he will himself declare his republic again free from Moscow. So there are lots of things that we don't know. And of course, it's very difficult to speak also about the public mood. In general, in war times as we are in now, people from the peripheries from these Muslim areas are often easier to recruit because they have no jobs at home. So many of the kontraktniki come from Chechnya, Dagestan, And Kadyrov uses them to showcase his loyalty to Putin. But of course, for the Chechens, that means a lot of casualties and a lot of grief. For the Dagestanis, the same thing. Yeah, I've heard a lot in this question of the disproportionate casualties in the war in Ukraine amongst ethnic minorities. We hear a lot about Buryats, but I have heard less about Chechens and Dagestanis in this area, at least in the press. Well, the Chechens are very media-savvy, of course. Kadyrov is constantly showing off as the big general of his troops fighting in the area of Bakhmut, for instance. Uh, You have Muslims fighting on both sides. Of course, there are also Crimean Tatars, but also Muslims from other parts of Russia fighting on the Ukrainian side. 
Here's a question from the chat. Do you, either of you have any thoughts on the relationships between Slavic Muslims and Crimean Tatars in Central Asia or Crimea, but also in the Caucasus? What is the relationship between Muslims within the post-Soviet space with, across ethnic groups? So in general, of course, a lot of celebration of Muslim solidarity. But on the other hand, as each of these nationalities is trying to go back to their own traditional Islam, which is different from each other, they are also divided by Islam. It matters whether you are a Shafi'i from the Caucasus, belong to one legal school, or a Hanafi from the central regions of Russia, because for the Hanafis, it's easy to marry a non-Muslim woman, whereas for Shafi'is in, the, in Chechnya, it's not. So there are distinctions among them. But the bigger distinctions are the ones whether you are for a kind of reformist Islam that is more open to a liberal thought or whether you are for an archaic, medieval, classical Islam that uh, relies completely on, uh, on textbooks written in the medieval period and has no eye for the situation in which Muslims, especially young people, are in. Amira, any comments on this issue? In Crimea, for example, we had soft people who are converted to Islam and they mainly are part of this global transnational Islamic organization. So they're not converting and become a part of so-called traditional Crimean Tatar Islam. They're not like part of that because they, they can't become part of community because of language issue, because of family ties and so on. But they can easily become part of these global Islamic networks like Hizbut Tahrir or Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, they play uh, quite important role in some of these organizations because those organizations are not interested in preserving ethnic identity of Crimean Tatars. So anyone, including any Slavic people, could become a normal member of those communities. We have some cases in Crimea and actually, yeah, it's a quite a noticeable movement within Slavic community to convert to Islam and play some role in those organizations and movements. And what about interfaith relations, say, with Russian Orthodoxy or Catholicism or any of the other non-Islamic religions in the region? Well, in Crimea, we have two big uh, religious groups, like also the Christians and Muslims, and also many other smaller uh, denominations. But the interconfessional relations in Crimea were mostly between those two big groups. And if you look at the level of ordinary believers, it's very unproblematic, actually, and we didn't see any like, domestic conflicts around religion and how people practice their religion. Uh, but at the level of institutions and policies developed by those institutions, we had a number of so-called religious conflicts around religious symbols or religious property. For example, in 2000, the Crimea was at the eve of huge conflict because it was a anniversary of the Christianization of Kievan Rus and Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchate in Crimea decided to establish thousands of cross at the entrance of the cities and villages, including those villages inhabited mostly by Crimean Tatars. So the Crimean Tatars perceive it as a symbolic marketing of the territory and they view it as attempts to present Crimea only as Christian land and they reacted. So they dismantled several crosses and Cossacks were involved on the side of patriarchate and we had some clashes in Crimea. And fortunately, it was resolved peacefully. 
by negotiations between Muftia and Patriarchy, who decided to establish a committee and discuss all these questions on symbolic religious symbols before going into the policy in Crimea, because it's very sensitive in Crimea. You know, these questions of Crimean belonging, who is indigenous and who is not, who has right to rule in Crimea, to get access to resources and so on. So it's very sensitive and very small things could provoke tensions between powers of different religions. Michael, how, how about the relations with the other confessions within the Russian Federation for Muslims? On the official level, they're supposed to be good. So the regime tries to keep them in balance and to make Islam the smaller brother of the Orthodox Church. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church is one monolith. It's a pyramid with one person on top. Islam is represented by several muftiates on regional levels. So Moscow is playing these muftis off against each other and forcing them all to walk basically in the line with the Orthodox Church. That is window dressing after all, but it has a lot of institutional power to make Islam another church, another kind of uh, ideological support for the regime. You saw that right after the start of the war, when the patriarch is talking about martyrdom and everybody's going to heaven once you die in the war, fighting against Ukraine, defending your homeland in Ukraine. The same is true for Russia's major muftis. They also came up with a fatwa saying uh, basically the same thing. If you fall, if you die uh, fighting for your homeland in brackets against Ukraine, in Ukraine, then you will go to heaven directly. So you see that there is a kind of imitation of the orthodox rhetoric by drawing at face value on the Islamic tradition, using the Islamic tradition for saying the same things and for demanding loyalty. That's a very sad development because it destroys any kind of diversity that was still there five years ago or 10 years ago in the Islamic community. It sounds like, from the way you put it, Michael, this issue of loyalty to the center, loyalty to Putin, the Putin system, this seems to be, I don't know how to say, it glosses over all of the kind of differences or attempts to, it attempts to keep, you know, the only question is, are you loyal? Would you say that loyalty is a primary driver, at least from the elites, in terms of religion and its relations with Moscow? At this point, yes. If you want to be part of it, you have to join the party, which is Yedinaya Rasiya, and you have to play the game that's being set out for you. So Islam is being coordinated by the presidential apparatus, which is the kind of shadow government of Russia. The government is just executing, and the people around Putin are the ones, the political technologists, that also govern Islam and that cooperate with Islamic leaders in order to make Islam adapted to the Russian system as it is. So yes, you have to show your loyalty. If you don't do that, you don't have a place in this corrupt system. This is how it is. Anything to add on that, Elmira? Yeah, I completely agree with Michael. The scenes is in full picture in Crimea after the annexation. So you can't just do your business, do your things and just sit quiet. You should show your loyalty. And we can see this on the example of Crimean Muftiat. You can't only do administering our Muslim life. You should make some uh, official statements like very political statements condemning Ukraine and also everything connected with the state policy. So you should show your loyalty in a very visible way. Otherwise, you can't be funded and you can't be replaced by another institution. For example, in Crimea, Russia came and established another movement and keeps it as alternative as an instrument of pressure towards the main movement if it will not 
show loyalty to full extent. So yes, it's completely different context in which to operate. You can't just, you know, do your, your things. You should be part of the system. Otherwise, you can't survive. Yeah. For those listening, I just have a couple more questions. So if you have any other questions, please put them in the Q&A. Given this emphasis on loyalty and this top-down pressure to keep people in line with the system in post-annexation Crimea and, of course, in the North Caucasus, how has this impacted people's practice of religion on the ground, say, in their everyday life? Is it one of these, I think, Michael, you, maybe you used this word early on in our conversation, performance, where you perform, but as we know, people perform publicly and maybe do something else in their own private life, family life. How has these things impacted everyday religious practice? Michael, you can start. Well, maybe it's time to flag the non-Russian citizens in Russia, which are millions. That is, laborers who came from Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, other areas of the post-Soviet area, and they were tossed around and had basically no rights. They were being living on the bazaars or living on construction sites. And for them, it's a different thing. Islam can be much of a refuge, a sanctuary. The little tiny shady mosques that exist at bazaars or at construction sites. So it's part of their own life and very different from the grand mosques that you now find in cities like Kazan or in Moscow. Not too many, by the way, because it's still much easier to build a hundred churches than one mosque in Moscow. So Islam is part of the system, but it's also with globalization, people understand that the way how Russia is being run at the moment is very much geared towards Slavic nationalism. The whole war is about a rhetoric of the Russian nation and Ruskimir, the Russian world. So they also feel alienated. And I wouldn't be surprised if that is not coming back in the form of Islamic sentiment against Russia. We simply do not hear about that because the media are being filtered and people are very careful in not to be singled out. Amir, how has the annexation impacted everyday religious practice? Well, I already mentioned about the persecutions, but, you know, the new thing that came to Crimea with Russians was, for example, the cameras they put on every mosque. So before it was like unbelievable, but now they're monitoring everything. So every, had several cases when Muslims were making some, having some conversations in mosque, and then after that they were persecuted because of those conversations. So this one's side of it. Uh, from in uh, other side, actually, you know, what many Muslims say, and especially official institutions are loyal to Russian government saying in Crimea, nobody forbids you to pray, nobody forbids you to practice your religion on a daily basis. So you can do whatever you want, but you can't cross the line, uh, and the line is something related to politics. So if you are not belonging to those transnational Islamic organizations, and you are not political, so you can be devoted a pious Muslim as much as you want, and nobody cares about it. So the main thing is to be within those limits, within those lines the government established. And also another very important thing, what Russia did when it came to Crimea, it started to build a cathedral mosque in Crimea. And this is very important. It was very well-designed idea because it was the hottest issue during the whole Ukrainian period of Crimea. Krematatas tried to get land to build that mosque, and they were not allowed to do it for many, many years. 
and Russia came and started the construction in the very center of the city, and it's almost done now. So it's like to show up the Russian government policy toward Islam and Muslims, something to show to the Kremlin Tatars and also to the outside world how Russia cares about Muslims and so on. Yeah, and partly financed by Ramzan Kadyrov, right, who is using that. Yeah, I was going to ask, because this is the famous picture I have of Grozny, is this incredibly huge mosque that has acted as such powerful soft power for Russia's control. Finally, we've, we kind of touched around, both of you mentioned various issues in terms of how the war has impacted these respective communities. But I, I want to ask about it specifically so we can have it, all these things in one answer. How has, Elmira, the war impacted Crimean Tatars? How did they understand it? What is the sense amongst the community towards the war? I think the biggest impact is Crimean Tatars' immigration from Crimea. And this is a very, very big problem for Crimean Tatars because of collective memory and because of those past immigrations, they became a minority in Crimea. So when now people are leaving and they're living in mass, like thousands are leaving, especially after the so-called partial mobilization into the army, Russian army in October, so it's just very painful for many Crimean Tatars who stay in Crimea just to lose people like that. So this is the biggest, I think, impact of the annexation. And also another one is because annexation became the re-traumatizing event for Crimean Tatars because it triggered all those collective memories. And many people, like many Crimean Tatars, fear the next deportation and many in panic and still in panic. So Part of Crimean Tatars left for Ukraine, for Turkey, for EU, United States, and other countries. Those who stay in Crimea live in fear and panic, and they don't know what to predict, how to plan. They're living in between. They don't know what to expect. I think this is uh, it's very devastating, actually, for the Crimean Tatars. And they became divided into two states now, and we are witnessing quite considerable differences between those who left Crimea after annexation and now based in Kiev and other Ukrainian places, and those who stayed in Crimea. I mean, there's differences in terms of understanding the future of Crimean Tatars. You know, there is a big gap between them, and we don't know how to make close the people, which is not that big. So Crimean Tatars are very much affected by annexation and also this full-scale attack on Ukraine in February 2022. Yeah, like all minorities, they do not feel that this is their war. That's clear. So they do it out of duty or out of repression. That is, they're not committed to it. And as Almira said, they emigrate to, especially to Kazakhstan, which is a very uh, favorite destination for people, simply because of the language affinity and because it's open. Also in Armenia and, of course, in Turkey, lots of people who have a different mindset would go to these places. At the same time, what happens at home in Muslim communities is, I just watched the news from two weeks ago, no, one week ago, when the hair of the beard of the Prophet Muhammad was shown at a site in Tatarstan. So there is a ceremony of demonstrating this a sacred piece of uh, this relic, just like we know that from the Catholic Church, Touring it around Russia, and it was in Belarus, it was in Siberia, and a, well, a couple of days ago it was in Tatarstan. This is an archaization. This is a primitivization 
of Islam, where people do not feel connected to, because everybody knows this is not the hair of the Prophet Muhammad. This must be something else, just like a nail from the cross of Jesus. It's getting ridiculous by the day. And people do not really buy into this and would therefore be singled out as dissenters or as perhaps as extremists who are no longer under the cover of the state-ordained muftiate. There is certainly a high degree of alienation through this war that is not, not an issue. Even if muftis try to declare it as a jihad for Russia, that is ridiculous. That was Elmira Maratova and Michael Kemper. Elmira Maratova is a research fellow at the Aarhus Institute of Advanced Studies in Denmark, and she was previously at the Crimea Federal University in Ukraine. She's a political scientist interested in minority, ethnic, and religious studies. And while at Aarhus, she would focus on the ethnic and religious developments amongst Crimean Tatars in post-2014 Crimea. Michael Kemper is a professor of East European history at the University of Amsterdam in the Department of European Studies, and he has published widely on Islamic literatures and manuscripts from the Volga Ural and North Caucasus region, on the history of Soviet Oriental studies, and on the interaction between languages of Islam and Eastern Orthodoxy in contemporary Russia. This is Eurasian Knot, and I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I hope you enjoyed this series. I'm glad it's finally over so we can move on to other things. So look forward to some of our programming in the coming weeks and months. I should also say that this episode was edited and mixed by Daniel Cooper from Podcuts Editing. You know, if you do a podcast and you do it all by yourself, like I do, you have to do the editing, and that can take a lot of time and can get quite tedious at certain points. So I decided to look for some expertise in audio and editing, and I turned to Daniel Cooper because editing a podcast shouldn't be a hassle, and that's why the Eurasian Knot has partnered with PodCuts Editing. If you have a podcast or you just need some audio work, consider using Daniel's services by going to podcutsediting.com. And a good thing is he'll give you your first edit free of charge. And as you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. I can't reiterate how important it is for you to become a patron, to show your support, uh, financial support, and also help the podcast out and, of course, pay for services like Daniel Cooper's. So if you like what we do here, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash And if you don't have the means to give some financial assistance, you can help spread the word on social media and let people know about the show and what we do here. That's also a big help. So until next time, bye. Чики чалы, а потом ее чтрезим, чтоб не убежали.